giving your offering or anything like that, just take your time. But we're just going to get rolling here. So we've got a party afterwards. I want to welcome everybody watching by live stream. I want to welcome you all here. I want to encourage you to share the stream. And we're doing the Gospel of John. Very powerful gospel. This gospel is written so that you would believe. It's important that we know the Bible. How many knows that? Two of you? It's very important. Everything the Lord does, He does on the basis of His Word. Everything the Holy Spirit does, He does on the basis of His Word. You may not, have, you may not understand everything, but as Christians, we're called to have a working knowledge of our Bible. And there's no greater place to start than in, with John and in Jesus. And so this is a very famous story um, out of, the, out of uh, John chapter 2. It's the wedding at Cana. So I'm going to read it for you, and I'm going to do my best to unpack it. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. So just to give you some geographical stuff, because this doesn't really mean much to us, Cana of Galilee. So if you know anything about Israel, Israel's a little small country. And in the north of Israel, there's a big lake. And on the northern side of the lake is the city of Galilee or the region of Galilee. And there's a tiny town on the north end of this lake called Cana. And, Jesus, and there was a wedding there. And Jesus' mother and his disciples and he himself were invited to the wedding and they go to the wedding, and they ran out of wine. And Jesus' mother comes to him and says, they have no wine. And he says to her, woman, what is that between you and me? My hour has not yet come. But his mother said to the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Say it with me. Whatever, whatever. he tells you to do, do it. If you get one verse this year, and you get one verse out of this message, that verse right there is the verse you need to know. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it, right? And so he says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And now there were six water pots made out of stone in the manner of purification of Jewish tradition, containing 20 to 30 gallons of peace. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them to the brim. And then he said, draw it out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it out. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water, that it, it, the water had become wine. But he didn't know where this came from. But the servants understood where it came from. So he asked the bridegroom. He said to him, everybody puts out their best wine at the beginning of the, of the fest, of, of, the, of, the, of the reception, so that once the, once the guests have, drink, have drank, then they bring out the inferior. In other words, you know, once everybody's kind of, you know, a couple of sheets to the wind, then they, they bring out the, the, the inferior wine. He says, but you have kept the wine, you've kept the good wine until now. And this was the beginning of signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and he manifested or brought forth his glory, and his disciples believed him. And then afterwards, he returned to Capernaum with his family and with his disciples. Jesus loves weddings. Have you know anything about that? Weddings were God's idea. They're not man's idea. They're not culture's idea. They're God's idea. He created weddings. We get the tradition of the father walking the bride down the aisle. Do you know where we get that tradition from? From the book of Genesis, when, Adam, when the father brought Eve to Adam. Here comes the bride, right? The father brought Eve to Adam. And he said, whoa, man. And he said, that's a great name. I'm going to call you whoa, man. So, and so he named her woman. That's right. It's not man's idea. Of all of the relationships we're going to have, the highest relationship is our marriage. 
Ladies and gentlemen, you will make a handful of decisions in your life, and you will spend the rest of your life managing that handful of decisions. And one of the major decisions you will make is who you will marry. You understand that? It's important, right? So God has an intention specifically for his people. Now I say this understanding that there are people who are not necessarily married to believers, but God wants us to, be, to marry believers, equally committed believers. Say it with me. Jesus matches hearts. Huh? So God's ideal is to match hearts. It's equality of heart, wanting and desiring the same things, specifically in him. That's, that's his intent. So what ends up happening is marriage becomes one of these major decisions. It's like the place that you work or the occupation or the career or the vocation that you, ch- you choose. That's a, that's a decision you manage. Where you live, that's another major decision you manage. If you follow Jesus, that's a major decision. You know, and your management of that or your willingness to commit to that's going to determine a lot in your life. But there are only a handful of decisions that you're going to make. And that handful of major decisions will affect you in every way. Marriage was God's design. It was created to be honored. It was created, to, it's designed to be the fabric of, of, it's the fabric of society. It's the first thing that God actually gave to man. He gave her a woman and he gave the earth a family. And from the family unit, he decided to build cities, nations, culture. And so the family unit is very, very important. And that's important to understand in a world that is completely decimating and undoing the understanding or the relationship of marriage and trying to redefine it in every way. God created marriage to be a covenant. What's a covenant? Say with me, a covenant is not a contract, right? So this is the concept. This is the ideal. Say with me, ideals are not always realities. We're broken people. We're dysfunctional people, right? As Christians, we're not supposed to divorce. And if divorce does come on the table, it's a last resort. It's never the first resort. So God's intended design, ready, is that we marry believers. That's his intended design. Then his intended design is that as we marry believers, that we're to take divorce as the option off the table. It's not to be the option. It's to be the last resort. It does happen, right? Someone's selfish. Someone doesn't want to change. Someone wants this. Someone wants that. You can just, you know, marriages break down when there's a lack of love and respect, that's the, essence of, that's the essence of marriage, love and respect. Men want to be honored and respected. Women want to be loved. And we're supposed to, I'm supposed to sacrifice myself for, for the loving effort of my wife's highest good, and she's supposed to sacrifice herself for a respectful honor of me. And it's an equality. That's what marriage is. When divorce breaks down, it's because there's an inequality. It's not about me. Marriage isn't about me. Marriage isn't about her. We think it's I'm going to marry this person and they're going to make all my dreams come true. Or I'm going to marry her and she's going to make all my dreams come true. You don't have it, if it, you don't have it right at all. Marriage is not about that. It's not even 50-50. Say it. Marriage is not 50-50. It's 100. 100. That's what it is. It's all of me for all of her. It's all of her for all of me. Yeah? You get the picture? It hurts. Say it with me. Marriage doesn't always make me happy, but it will make you holy. Try it. Marriage is designed to expose your selfishness. Yeah. And it's designed to expose your brokenness. Not in a sense that your, that your brokenness or your selfishness 
is a detriment, but God is showing you this is what is working against you. This is that. There's no one that's going to bring this out of you quite like your wife. There's no one that's going to bring it out of you quite like, quite like you. The issue isn't that, what, that our issues are exposed. The issue is that we work on our issues and we're willing to move forward. That's what it's supposed to do. People get married and they're like, oh, pastor, we shouldn't have been married. We got married six months ago. All we do is fight and all these things. And I'm like, well, what are you fighting about? And then they start telling me the stuff that they're fighting about over stupid stuff. You know, she wants me to change my clothes. You know, she, you know it's just, just stupid, stupid stuff, right? And I'm like, well, the marriage, they're like, it's, I'm, I always tell them the marriage is working. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. The marriage is designed to expose you. They were naked and not ashamed. Marriage is supposed to expose you. It exposes your weakness. It exposes your flaws. It exposes your vulnerability. Nobody sees me like Sherry sees me. Nobody, right? We can glam it out for everybody else, but nobody sees me like she sees me, and no one sees her like she sees me, like I see her, right? We see each other in all of these different ways, and so it's supposed to expose me. And when I see that my selfishness, or I see that my anger, or I see that my discontent, or, she, or, or we see that maybe my brokenness, I'll throw myself under the bus. It's always a smart thing to do when you're talking about your marriage. Take the bullet, dudes. Take the bullet, right? And so if I look at my life and I see my brokenness, and I see that my brokenness is the, is the impediment in this relationship, or you know, th- that I'm supposed to give up in order that the marriage may live, She's supposed to give up in order that the marriage may live. Now, these are ideals. The only way that it works is through Jesus. I don't love her because she's deserving of love. She doesn't honor me because I'm deserving of honor. I love her because Jesus says so. She honors me because Jesus says so. Because she's not always lovable, and I'm not always honorable. Do you understand that? This has nothing to do with our perceptions of the other person. It has to do, because if you get married and that's what you think it's the way it's going to go, it's not going to go like that. You know, I don't care how pretty she is. She's got issues. Huh? I don't care how much of a statuous man he is. He's got issues. There's issues. And so you don't do it because the other person is deserving of it, because they're not. You do it because Jesus commands it. And so that's the idea. The sacrifice, yes, is for her, but the sacrifice ultimately is for Jesus. That's why, that's why this works. That's why we see this marriages fall apart even in the kingdom is because somewhere along the line, there's no discipleship. People come to me, you know, just so you know, a little clue phone, you ever come to me and there's marital counseling on the table, the first thing I ask is, I mean, and I'm not volunteering myself for marital counseling, but the first thing I ask is, are you a Christian? If you're a Christian, you are accountable to the word of God, Period period. Need we go any further? You know, so where the change has to happen, it's changed relative to what God expects of us. You know, so it's like that. When people, when the, when the person isn't a believer, there's no leverage with the person. There's no leverage. They don't know Jesus. What's my leverage? I don't have any leverage. But if you're a Christian, you're not under my command. You're under his command. You're commanded by your king to love that woman. You're commanded by your king to honor him and to respect him. And so wherever the act of love is, not, is missing, you're commanded to rectify it. Wherever the act of disrespect and dishonor is missing, you're commanded to rectify it. Right? So the way it works, I say, what's that look like? I look at my wife, I don't know how to love her. Clue phone, gentlemen, you don't know how to love your wife. I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you. I'm here to help you. My name is Pastor Kevin. I'm your friend. I'm going to help you. That woman has to teach you how to love her. And that's when that's the Lord showed me that. I used to bring my wife flowers. She doesn't care about flowers. You know, what, you know what ministers to Sherry? Acts of service. Gifts don't do anything for her. 
But man, if I got a vacuum and a mop in my hand, she's like, my love, you know. She's coming out. She's leaning on the doorway in lingerie. She's like, you've never looked so sexy at me in, my, in your entire life. That mop in your hand is really turning me on. Because her love language is acts of service. It's true. I used to come home, you know, like, and she'd be like, I'd be like, what? And so it was a real struggle for me, and it had to be, teach me how to love you. I have to teach her how to respect me and honor me. And in between there, there's a compromise. You understand? There's a compromise. I cannot always do this, but I can do this. She cannot always do this, but she can do this. And the bridge is built within the relationship that causes the compromise, and the marriage lives. That's the idea, isn't it? The marriage is not about you. The kingdom's not about you. Christianity's not about you. It's all about Jesus. And so the sacrifices and the commitments, I'm not saying marriage is easy. I'm the last guy to say that. I'm not saying that at all. I've been down the road, man. I, got, I bear many wounds. Many wounds. <laughs> say married men live longer. I'm like, yep. But they're statistically higher to wish for death more than the single man. <laughs> many a night I've said, kill me now, Jesus. Kill me now. <laughs> it cannot be any more painful than this. <laughs> and all the single people are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's the fabric of our society. We have to honor it. The Christian is called to honor it. We're called to serve within it. Jesus spoke very highly of marriage. It's the image of him and his church. The Bible speaks of him and his church. We're married. There's a covenantial relationship. He's bound unto me, and he is bound unto you. We are the adornment of who he is. That's what the whole idea of the whole bride thing is. It's the adornment, right? Dudes, I don't know if you're aware of that, but she makes you look good. Hmm? Yeah, the woman makes you look good. She makes you look good. Uh, can, I, can somebody help me? She makes you look good. She's your adornment. We, I don't know how we are, but we are Jesus' adornment. Shows us in Hebrews that he celebrates us before the throne, and he celebrates us before the council, the divine council in the heavenly realm. He said, here I am and the sons and daughters you have given me. Jesus comes and presents us as treasure before the Father. We are his bride, his adornment. That's the idea. We are the adornment of Jesus for eternity. We are the fruit of his sacrifice. We are the treasure of his offering. And so that his offering would never be said to have been in vain. Why? Look at his bride. Look at the adornment of the people that he has saved. Look at the adornment of the people that he has given himself for. Red, yellow, black, white, short, whatever. Pick, pick something. We're all different, but we're all loved in Christ. And we are the adornment. We are the bride of Christ. That's what this means, right? It's not like, well, what are we, feminine? No, you're adornment. You're the adornment. As the bride is the adornment of the husband, she is the glory of the husband. That's what the Bible says. It's true. It's true. You may not agree with it, but I'm speaking truth to you. We are his adornment. And so this is a very high relationship with Jesus. He doesn't take marriage lightly. Matthew 19, they're, they're asking him, they're asking him, uh, Jesus, they want to know if they can divorce their wives for any reason. You have to understand what's going on in this culture. This culture is not the, like, like our modern culture. Women had no rights in this culture. Not because Jesus told them they had no rights, but their society had created a culture in which women had no rights. 
Jesus, that's why everybody's shocked that Jesus is hanging out with women, right? He's meeting a woman at the well. He's healing the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. He's being touched. God forbid, right? A rabbi be touched by a woman, yet he let them touch him. You know why? Because they're not his rules. They were never his rules. They were there. The religiously correct had made the rules, but Jesus never made those rules. And so in this culture, women were basically dependent upon their husband. And so when the husband got rid of them, and this is what they wanted to do to get rid of that woman for any reason at all, right? Just get rid of her. Can I trade my, my 40 in for 220s? That's what they were doing, right? I don't like the way she looks anymore. I don't like, I don't like the way she cooks my meals. I don't like this. I don't like that. I don't, she disrespects me. I don't know. Whatever reason they were, they, were, they had created a system where they could divorce the woman for any reason. And so they're asking Jesus, is this true? You know? And he's like, well, where do you get that? And they quote Deuteronomy. You know, why did Moses say a certificate of divorce? He said, because you had hard hearts. Divorce is that, you know, so he's basically, I'm not going to get into divorce, but, you know, he's giving them the context. And so when they ask him this, he says, have you not read? Anytime Jesus looks at a Pharisee and says, have you not read? It's basically saying, don't you know what you're doing? Right? I don't know what you're an expert in, but you're probably an expert in something. Right? And basically, Jesus is challenging him. This is all they ever did was read. That's all they did. From the time they were like six years old, they read. And they lived their life reading. And Jesus looks at them and goes, haven't you read? Are you that stupid to think that's what I meant? Are you that dull to think that's what I meant? That from the beginning, he made them male and female. So let me just stop right here. In case anybody's confused about gender, let me clarify it for you. And if anybody out there is confused about gender, let me clarify it for you. I want you to say it with me. He made them, he made them. Male, male and female. He was not confused how he made them. He didn't make them a guy and said, ah, oh, you know, he should have been a girl. He didn't make them a girl and go, ah, oh, he should have been a guy. God made them male and female, period. This corruption, this demonic corruption that's an assault against the created order and the gender, the defined gender that God created, this is not of even of the world. This is straight from hell. These are seducing, lying spirits. And the people that partner with that, you agree with devils. You are in agreement with devils, with the demonic force that is trying to corrupt the very nature of God and his design and creation. It's an affront to him, just as marriage is affronted. We think we can marry anybody we want. Well, who told you that? Marriage, Jesus defines marriage. He defines gender, and he defines marriage. Marriage is between a male and a female. Marriage is not between two dudes and two chicks, right? Not, marriage is not between a dude and a half dude and a half lady. It's not between that. Marriage is man and woman. This is the design. You're saying, well, where do we get this from? Where is this all coming from? This is coming because man has abandoned the moral law. You and I do not have the right to determine right and wrong. I know that's not popular. I know that's not what we're teaching in schools. We have to get to vote. I think, I believe, I think, karaoke generation. Everybody gets to say something, but no one has responsibility. Huh? That's the world we live in. We live in a, a, we live in a world of karaoke. I get to say whatever I want and sing whatever I want, and I get to control the outcome. No, you don't. No, you don't. Who told you that? You don't get to vote. Bible says righteousness belongs to the Lord, right? The moral law, if you want to look at, okay, just context of Scripture, there are four basic laws that are in the Scripture. There's the ceremonial law of the Jews. There's the religious civil law of the Jews. There's the moral law, and there's the law of the Spirit. 
Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law. Jesus fulfilled the religious civil law, right? The penalties of condemnation for breaking the religious civil law. And he fulfilled the ceremonies. But the moral law still stands. What is the moral law? Right and wrong. Murder is wrong. Stealing is wrong. Right? Adultery is wrong. You understand it? The moral law has never been removed. In a confused generation where nobody wants to call it out, let me help you. The moral law still stands. You don't determine right and wrong. Jesus does. Period. And when you break that, and when you transgress that, the fabric of society frays. And if you can't see what's happening, you're blind. If you can't see our society fraying because of open violation of the moral law, open violation of the moral law, this has nothing to do with God's judgment. This has everything to do with God's order. If you put diesel fuel in a gasoline car, what's going to happen? Will it run? It might chug a couple of feet, but that's about it. You cannot mess with the design. Some of you are engineers and things like that. If you put the wrong power source on the product, either the power source won't work or it'll fry it. You have to work with the design. God has created a design and a system of order within this world. And when we violate it, we violate not just natural law, we violate the created moral law. When we follow the moral law, blessing flows. When we corrupt it and we step outside of the moral law, corruption comes and chaos is there. And we're confused. In California, they want to marry 10-year-olds. This is where we are. Do you understand that? 10-year-olds. We're cutting up our children and saying it's okay. Have we lost our collective mind? Well, my son came to me and said he should have been a girl. So I took him for gender modification. How old is he? Seven. I mean, really? You think this, you think this stuff is far out there? It's on your doorstep. It's on your doorstep. It's in your schools. I tell parents more than anything, you want to take control of something? Get control of your schools. Go to the class and find what they're being taught. You want to know the curriculum. What are they teaching? My children had an open door policy with me. Tell me what's going on. You tell me something, boom, I'm there. And they would see me coming. They got to know me real well. Every school my kids were at, I was, boom, I was in the administration. I don't want to talk to the teacher. I want to talk to the administrator. I want to say, I want to talk to you about the human development class that my son is taking over here in seventh grade. I want to talk about that. It's like, okay. I said, who's the teacher? He tells me. I said, are you aware that he's showing pornography? I said, are you aware of that? He's like, no, I'm not aware of that. It's like, no, it's human development. I said, he's showing pubescent children. That's what he's showing talking about human development. I'm not talking about drawings. He's showing photographs. I'm like, legally, if he has that on his computer, I don't care what the justification is, that's illegal. I said, it's illegal for him to possess it, and it's illegal for the pervert to show it to the class. You know, and they're like, oh, 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 oh. I said, so either you're going to exempt my son from that class, or you're going to stop allowing that to, to, to take place. And they, I did that so many times, they would see me coming. I'd, I'd even see it on their faces. They'd see me, and they'd be like, oh, my gosh, here he comes. And I'd be like, yep, here I come. Here I come. If you do not take charge of your children, come on. If you don't take charge of your children, they will do it for you. The state 
wants the ability to counsel your children on their gender without your knowledge. While you're napping and thinking they're teaching reading, writing, and arithmetic, they're indoctrinating your children. And if you think that's not happening, your head's in the sand. I'm not saying there aren't good schools. I'm not saying there aren't good teachers. But on a whole, this is going on wholesale. Pumping them. It's not about math anymore. It's social experiments. It's the degradation of the family. Trying to get truth police to report their parents. This is what's going on, man. This is what's going on. And if you, you know, when people want to get involved, like more than even civil politics, the school is the arena. The school board, the school teachers, the principals, and you have every right. You are that child's parent. They are not, they are not uh, stewards of the state. is not their steward. You are. That state, the state government and those schools do not have the legal authority that the parent has. And if you give it to them, they're going to take it. But if you rise with the collect, Miami-Dade was just going to push a curriculum. I don't know if you all read the news. They were going to push a curriculum. But as soon as the curriculum got exposed for what it was, a mass amount of people came out and shouted it down, and they shifted the curriculum. Christians need to run for the school board. And you need to keep running for the school board until you get on the school board. Because the school board controls the curriculum. You need to know what is in these lesson plans. Because it's not calculus. Timmy has two daddies, right? This is what they're teaching. Johnny doesn't know if he's a boy or a girl. Let's read about how Johnny can figure out if he's a boy or a girl. This is what's going on. Yeah, <laughs> you're just looking at me like I'm, like, like I'm from Mars. I'm telling you this is what's going on. It's, it's totally true. It's completely true. And you have an obligation. The Christian doesn't have a voice on everything, but we have a voice on the moral law. Whether Elon Musk buys Twitter... Who cares? I have no voice there. But I absolutely have a voice on the moral law. And this is what I tell my wife. We, we have the right to speak out on the morality. And you know what it is? You know, simple answer? You, Mr. So-and-so, don't determine right and wrong. Jesus does. The state is not the final authority on right and wrong. The Lord is. We don't get to vote on what's right and wrong. This has nothing to do with relative. And if they don't like it, oh, well. I'm telling you, slap Jesus on the table and watch their heads go back. Know what you're talking about and go in there and take charge of your children. Take charge of your children. They're yours. They're entrusted to you. That's all I got to say about that. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> he made them male and female. The moral law stands, man. Moral law stands. <laughs> People don't think it's true. Wait till Jesus shows up and they're going to get a stark education about what the moral law is all about. He gave another example of a wedding feast in Matthew 22. And he said, the, the, wedding the kingdom is like a wedding. Yeah, see, going back to that. And he says, where the nobles were invited, but the nobles didn't want to come. They were too experienced and too lofty to come to the king's wedding feast. So the king became incensed, and he sent the servants out to the highways and the byways and invited the whosoevers. Huh? Anybody that would come, they can come. Yeah? And some of us were the whosoevers, and we can say, thank you, Jesus. For inviting the whosoevers, right? But at this wedding feast, there was a person that showed up in the wedding feast and they all had, all had garments on, but this guy came in and he didn't have the right garment on. He said, how'd you get in here? He says, you don't have the right garment on. And they tossed him out into outer darkness. You're not coming into the kingdom on your own terms. You come on Jesus's terms. You're not coming to the kingdom based upon your own morality. You're coming the way that Jesus says, or you won't come at all. 
There's no reasoning with Jesus. You're not going to reason with him. Well, I just thought and everything. No, no. The time for reconciliation is now. When that time comes and the Lord sits and he comes as a king, he comes to consummate with his bride. He comes to take his sons and daughters and establish them in an eternal kingdom. He's not playing around. He's not playing around with the unbeliever. So the world may mock him now, but I can tell you they will not mock him. Revelation says when he appears in the clouds, they will go to the caves. They will take their silver and gold and throw it to the streets. They're going to try to buy him off. And he will say, save us from the wrath of the Lamb, for the day of his wrath has surely come. But they won't be there. It won't be there. Not going to happen. When the wedding happens and when the king comes, there's no more negotiation. When the breath leaves your body and you don't know Christ, there is no more negotiation. You will die in the state that you find yourself. If you're born again, you inherit eternal life. If you've rejected Christ, you will inherit eternal death. And you say, what's eternal death? Use your imagination. Hell's not a party. That's a big lie. Who told you that? Hell, is hell real? Hell yeah, hell's real. Absolutely. Church doesn't want to say hell's real. I'm going to tell you, hell's real. Hell is real. Jesus talked more about hell than anybody else in the entire Bible. And he's God himself. Why would he do that? Because he knows it's real. And he's come on a rescue mission to save us from ourselves, to save us from the destruction that's already on us. Say, why would God send anybody to hell? He's not sending anyone to hell. He's saving you from it. You're already condemned. You're born condemned. You're born in sin. You're born under sin. Just a thought. We have a ground to speak on the moral law. Marriage is a gift. It's to be honored. It's our, marriage is a model. The family unit is a blessing. The church is a blessing. This is a family. It's what we are at our core. God loves you. He brings you into his family, calls you sons and daughters, and then he gives you a local family that we might be a part of one another's lives, that we might support one another, be encouraged by one another, find life in each other's, in each other's world. That's the idea. We're supposed to bear one another's weakness. Say it with me. Bear one another's weakness. Get over your offenses. Forgive. Restore. And move on. Just had a conversation with somebody, and this guy came right at me, right at me. And to say I didn't bristle at the way this guy was treating me would be an understatement. But I sat there, and I listened to him, and his eye was loaded, and I really wanted to fire back. And the Lord said to me, give up your right to be offended. (laughs) And so I I said, man, I appreciate that. And I said, I feel really charged at the way that you're talking to me. And I said, but I just want you to know that I give up my right to be offended. I said that to him. You know, and he's like, well, maybe, maybe that was charged. I'm like, maybe that was charged? If I told you what he said, you, you would think it was charged. Came right at me. You know, accused me of all kinds of crazy stuff. I'm like, whoa. Like, okay. All right. I said, well, I just want to let you know. I, I, you know, I've heard you. And I find what you're saying to be very, you know, whatever I said, offensive. But I give up my right to be offended. We have to give up our right to be offended, and that is extremely hard. Extremely hard. <laughs> we want to react, don't we? Yeah, right. Yeah. Sherry gets the shovel out and says, five years ago, Kevin, you did this. I'm like, oh, we going with the shovel? I come with the bobcat. Digging it up. Well, 10 years ago, you did this, and you've been doing it the whole time. We got to let it go, man. 
We got to get past it. We have to apologize, reconcile, restore. I'm sorry. I won't do it again. And if I do, please have patience with me. It's not my heart to hurt you. It's not my intention to hurt you. It's got to be like that. So Cana's a small town. They're out of wine. Mary goes to Jesus and says they don't have any wine. Well, why would she do that? If you got a problem, the best person to ask is Jesus. <laughs> She's like, well, we got a problem here. Who can we? Let's ask Jesus. And so she goes to ask Jesus. Say, what's the big deal? They're out of wine. Well, the wedding would go on for a week sometimes. And it would be a social embarrassment because it was a community event. And it would be a very big embarrassment upon the family if they didn't have enough wine or they weren't capable of taking care of their guests. And so Jesus says, what is between you and me? So the question is, she comes to him and he says, woman. So the idea of him saying woman is the, not disrespecting his mother, but he's differentiating his, her agenda from his father's agenda, right? So he's differentiating. He never called her mother, yeah? which blows Catholic doctrine right out of the water. Oh, Mother Mary is interceding on behalf of Jesus. She played no part in his ministry whatsoever. And he never called her mother. The only time he even mentioned the word mother was when he was on the cross. And he said to John, behold your mother, mother, behold your son. And he was giving responsibility for caring for his mother over to John. That's the only time he did it. But he never called her mother. He called her woman. Woman. Not disrespectful, but understanding it's not about you. It's about my father. Right? And so she says, he says, what is between you and me? What you're asking me for, what, do you know what's between us? He's asking her a theological question. Do you understand what I come with? Do you understand what I carry and what you're asking me for? Do you understand what the barrier is between that? Because the Messiah is supposed to bring new wine. All through the Old Testament, the Messiah was to bring new wine. Deuteronomy was the wine of the harvest. The Messiah will bring the wine of the harvest. Psalms, he will bring the wine of celebration. Joel, he will bring the wine of the kingdom. Song of Solomon, he will bring the wine of intimacy. And the list goes on. Jesus said he brought wine, and he's going to put new wine in. What is he referencing? I'm the Messiah. I've come to bring wine. Wine is the intoxication with his presence. It's the consummation with his presence. I'm the Messiah. I come with the new wine. Do you understand what's between us? It's a theological question. Mary didn't know the answer to what Jesus was asking. Jesus is going to demonstrate the answer to the question. <laughs> So Mary just goes, mm, I'm not really sure what you're talking about, but whatever he tells you to do, do it. She told the servants. And so Jesus said, take, four, take six stone water pots, take the water pots, fill them with water, and draw the water out. The idea that Jesus is saying, what is between what I am and what you're asking for is transformation. So the question was, what is between you and me, Mary? You're asking me for something. You want something for me, but you know what the barrier is between that? that that's the way the Greek reads. What stands between what you ask? You know, we translate it, what is that to me, as if Jesus was indifferent. Jesus is never indifferent. He never doesn't care. He's at the wedding. He wants to be at the wedding, right? He's there. If he was indifferent, he would have never went. The translation is always like it's he's indifferent. Well, what does that matter to me? Ha, 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 ha. No, the question wasn't that. The question is, is what stands between what you ask? Because he's speaking like prophetically. She's speaking naturally. Hey, they don't have any wine. Jesus is like, kingdom wine is what I'm talking about, you know? But she didn't get it. And Jesus demonstrates what's between you and what I carry is transformation. You're empty, you need to be filled. Once you're filled, you need to be transformed. That's the idea. Man is lost and hopeless and helpless without Christ. Lifeless, empty vessels. Life is empty. I don't care how big your Instagram is. I don't care what kind of car you drive. I don't, it doesn't matter. Your life is empty. Possessions don't fill it. 
pleasure doesn't fill it, man's life is empty and will remain empty without the Lord. The Lord is really the only thing that satisfies. He's the only one that satisfies, right? And he satisfies fully. God, God can satisfy you and bring peace to your life no matter what circumstance you're in. Your house can be burning down around you and you can have peace in your heart. You can, the Lord can be with you. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. You have total calamity around you, but you can be in the spirit, yeah. you know? And, and you can still be, you can still, you're not empty, you don't feel lost, you feel hopeful, even in the worst of situations, and it's because Jesus comes into us, right? So we're empty water pots. We need the infilling of the, of the spirit. We need the infilling of his presence. And then from the infilling of his presence, it's transformation. It's actually a progression. People are lost without Christ, but then we have Christians who have the spirit in them, but have no manifestation of life. You get out much? Christians are like the most sourpuss people, legalistic, hurtful, judgmental, no life, no wine, right? People come to me, you know, they're sinning a church pastor. I'm like, yeah. And I go, I could tell you five more things that you don't even know about. You know, I'm like, there's sin, in every, there's sin everywhere, man. We're all broken. We're fractured. The only one who's holy is Jesus. And there is no holiness without the Holy Spirit. You cannot produce holiness on your own. No matter how hard you try, no matter how many rules you keep, you cannot produce holiness on your own. The holiness comes through the Holy Spirit. And when you're in the Spirit, this is the idea. So this is the, this is the comparison. When you're in the Spirit, you're clean. You know what I'm talking about? You get in the Spirit, you just worship. The presence of God is in you and on you. And you're like, you don't care about anything. You like you, you know, you like everybody and, every, and you like you and there's no condemnation or anything like that because you're holy. Holy means clean. That's all it means. Clean. Clean. Perfection, but clean is really the essence. They ran out of wine. Jesus is the one. He says, listen, in order for this, what stands between you and me is the filling and the transformation. We have to be transformed. water purification. I'm not going to get into all that. I don't have time. Anyway, I promised a party. I'm on a party. We're going to get to the party. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. One minute, 32 seconds to go, and I'm going to be close. I'm going to be close. <laughs> so the struggle in our world is to bring Jesus into the everyday. Isn't this the struggle? This is, this is really the struggle. How do we bring Jesus into the everyday? And what he's telling us is it's intoxication. That's really it. You have to take what's in you and draw it out. This is what he's saying. You have to be transformed. Allow the love that's in you to come out. Give it to the master of the feast, which is people of influence. You have to let, you have to draw out. A lot of Christians have life in them. They have transformation. They're born again Christians, but don't have the, don't have the fruit or the vine or the wine of the Holy Spirit. They don't have the joy of the Holy Spirit. Then there are those who do, but they contain it. They never share it. They never give out. You know, the way we bring Jesus into the, into the regular world is through intoxication. Just, just, just be intoxicated with him. See people as he sees them. See your work as he sees it. See your family as he sees it. Not as you see it. See your circumstance. I'm always telling him, I have circumstances confront me all the time. All the time. And I'm like, how do you see this, Lord? <laughs> Show me how you see it. And he'll be like, eh, it's not that bad. <laughs> what do you say here, Lord? And he'll give me a word. My reliance is not upon my perceptions, at least to, this is what I'm striving for. It's upon the Lord, and we get intoxicated. You want to reach people for Jesus? Get intoxicated with Jesus. Love him, and you'll reach him. You'll reach people, right? You want to yield the things that God has for you? Become intoxicated with what he wants. Become hilarious in the things that he asks for. He asks for this, he can have it. 
He wants this, he can have it. He wants me to raise my hands, my hands are up. He wants me in his house on Sunday, I'm there. He wants me a part of groups, he wants me developing. I mean, I'm just giving you basics. This is, this is basic stuff. This is elementary school stuff for us as Christians. If he wants it, give it to him. Be intoxicated about it, have joy. There's no greater place to be this morning than right here. I don't know if you know that or not. There's no greater place. There is nothing more life-giving than where you are right now. I mean, really, what do you got to do? Watch a football game? Really? You know, frustrate your life a little more? I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> oh, dang it, you know. Anyway, just encouraging you. If you want the wine to flow in your life, then do it. See your wife as Jesus sees you, as you see her, as he sees her. Who is she to me? She's my gift to you, Kevin. Show me how to love her, Lord. Show me how to value her. Start doing that and let her get intoxicated. Then just start staring at her. Okay, Lord, show me how you see her. And you're gonna see a totally different perspective if you will look through his eyes and not yours. If you will live from his intoxication and not yours. This is what we're supposed to live from, right? We're supposed to be intoxicated. You know, we're, we're supposed to be so intoxicated with hope that people look at us and go, are you for real? Are you for real? You mean to tell me you're that hopeful? Have you seen what's going on in the world? I'm like, well, there's stuff going on in the world, but, you know. Does stuff freak me out? Yeah, stuff freaks me out. But you know what I asked the Lord? Like, gas prices was the latest thing. I don't even care about gas prices anymore. You know why? Because Jesus told me don't look at it. <laughs> I'm pumping the gas, and I'm like, $3.89? Are you kidding me? You know? And then it keeps going up. I mean, it's kind of stable now somewhat, but when it was going up, I was like, what do you want me to do, Lord? He's like, stop looking at it. It's like, what's it gonna cost you, 100 bucks? You don't think I can give you 100 bucks? Yeah. Right? Yeah. This is gonna cost you another 100 bucks a month, Kevin? What do you, you don't think I can give this to you? You don't think I can give, to you, give that to you? This is what we're supposed to be. We should be intoxicated. My God's gonna provide. Prices are going up. Praise Jesus. That means my wages are going up. Because I'm above only and not beneath. <laughs> That's right. It's so true. We're to be intoxicated. It says, this was the first of the signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and he manifested his glory. Say this, his disciples believed him. It's the whole essence of John's story. Everything was done to provoke and invoke belief. Believe. 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 This is the Messiah. They believed because they saw water to wine. Mary believed because he, she knew what he said. Mary trusted what he said. If he tells you something, it's going to happen. She trusted his word. You understand that? It doesn't matter what brings you to the place of faith and belief, not just in him, but in his promises. If you don't know Jesus, your first step is belief in who he is. Surrendering your life, all of you, for who he is. That's the first step. And if you do know Jesus, then it's the, it's the beginning to believe in his promises. That's the next step. That's the cage that the Christian lives in, is that they never believe God for his promises. And we all stay stuck in this dormant state. Oh, we're saved and sanctified, but nothing's produced out of our life. Nothing ever comes forth out of our life. Our lives don't move forward. They sit static and stagnant because we never grow to the place where we're not just trusting him for salvation, but believing God for greater things. That's another story for another day. The issue is that you believe. His first sign was bringing forth his goodness. First thing he did is I want joy. The first thing I want is I want the intimacy of relationship 
and I want you intoxicated with me. He made 180 gallons of wine. Six water pots, 30 gallons each. Six times 30 is what? I know you, some of you don't do math on the weekends. I got it. I understand that. 180. Like, what? <laughs> Wait till Monday, man. I'll give you the answer. But, you know, I mean, I get you. I understand. 180 gallons of wine. He didn't just give him a bottle. Here you go. You guys are out of wine. Here you go. You know. <laughs> Have some gallo, you know, here, have a little bottle of gallo. He, he made 180 gallons. Above and beyond what we can ask or think. Generous God. They don't believe there was more than 200 people at the wedding. That's basically a gallon for everybody at the wedding. Right? That's a party, Rudy. <laughs> just saying. I'm just saying. It's the idea, be intoxicated with me. Be full. That's the first thing he wants. Anything, anything that violates the love relationship between you and him, that's what he stands against. He's for you, and he's fiercely in love with you. And his desire is to remove everything that stands between that love relationship and that intoxication. Your heart should be the same. Whatever stands between the intoxication with Jesus needs to be removed, and you need to be passionate for it. So the issue is, do you believe? So do you believe? You believe, amen. Bible says, if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you'll be saved. Every single person on this planet needs to be saved. You must, again. Being born again is not about believing something in your mind. It's about believing in your heart. You may not understand anything about it, but you must know that you must give your heart to Jesus. If that's all you know, that's enough. Understanding comes later. So the Bible says this, all have sinned. Every single one of us, we're in the same condition without Christ. We've sinned and we've fallen short of God's glory. We're hopeless and helpless and we cannot save ourselves. The penalty for that sin is separation and eternal condemnation. We're born in it. But God doesn't want to leave us that way, so he sent Jesus and Jesus offers us a, a gift. The gift of Jesus is eternal life. And how do you receive eternal life? It's really simple. Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. You say, I don't know how to do that. Happy day, I'm here to help you. We're gonna pray here as a group. If you're in this room and you've never given your life to Jesus or you're not sure, today's your day. If you're watching at home and you've never given your life to Jesus and you're not sure, today's your day. We're gonna say a simple prayer. It's a 40 second prayer. We're gonna pray together, right? And all you gotta do is open your heart. So let's just pray. Just say, dear Jesus, I believe that you are the savior and I need a savior. I may not understand this, but I choose to believe it. And so I open my heart to you, Jesus. And I ask you to come inside. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to heal me. I ask you to restore me. And I ask you to repurpose my life. All that I am, I give to you. And all that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come on. Amen. All right. <laughs> well, God loves you. We love you. We're going to close the stream because we got a little party going on over here. So the Lord bless you, keep you, make his face shine down upon you, be gracious to you in every way, and may you forever live within his favor. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So I want to bless you guys. I want to encourage you. I don't know what's going on over here, but I do. That's what's going on. See? Pizza, right? 
pizza's going on, right? So I want to encourage you to volunteer tables. Um, we may have prayer team available. Prayer team's available. Please make your way over there. And then that's it. Love you guys. Hit the pizza. Hit the prayer table. And let's go for it.